the cup and the leaf all to be one. Everyone knows there's a job to be done and with a team so fine. I'm proud they're mine. We'll be singing the song. Dunfermline Athletic Former Players Association podcast is sponsored by Starna Apparel. Affordable and stylish clothing born on the terraces. Visit their website, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to episode 8 of the Dunfermline Athletic Former Players Association podcast, Walking Down the Holbeath Road, where we will reminisce about yesteryear and the players who've been lucky enough to wear the famous black and white stripes. I'm your host, Mikey Mokkevich, and on this episode, we speak to a former player whose career in the game spanned 26 years. Signing for Dunfermline from Clyde Bank in March 1988 for a then club record fee of £85,000, he would play 106 times for the Pars, including winning the 1988-89 First Division Championship. So sit back, grab a bovril, and enjoy this one with David Irons. And John Watson reflected Eddie Irons, the breakthrough! And a goal fit to win a championship. The midfielder, Davy Irons. And the Dunfermline fans delighted. The build-up was neat, and the key flick was this one here by John Watson, finding Irons, a powerful shot that's always going away from Kennedy. So thanks for joining us on this podcast, David. You had, as we've said in the intro, 26 years um, playing career in Scottish football. But first and foremost, how, how are you doing? I'm good, Michael. I am uh, living life quietly, and work, working and living in Dumfries area. So I am I'm all good. I think kids have oh, yeah, got three kids. They're all grown up, but no, I'm, I'm doing fine, thanks. Good man, good man. So you mentioned Dumfries there, so we'll start right at the beginning. You were born in Glasgow in 1961, but you moved to Dumfries and you pretty much grew up there. So just tell us a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing in Dumfries. Yeah, well, I moved down in, I think it was about 60, 1964, 65, right about then. My mum and dad moved down to Dumfries. My dad he was an engineer. He got a job in the ICI factory, which was a massive employer in this part of the world. So we all moved down and uh, had all my school years, both primary and secondary, happy school years in Dumfries, in Dumfries Academy. So there's a number of ex-players from Dunfermline that lived in the area at the time and mentioned Graham Robertson as one, mm-hmm. um, Ian McCall. Ian's older brother, Gordon, was one of my best friends. We grew up together and Ian would be tagging along occasionally, being that wee bit younger. So Superb. I had my life just revolved around playing football, either with the school mm. or with local boys team that we played with. And uh aye, a lot of happy memories. Brilliant. And you speak about obviously football at a young age. What I take it as a young boy, your dream was to be a professional footballer or what and what was your your kind of background in youth football down in Dumfries? 
I think all I ever wanted to do was kick a ball. And I mean, I never, I mean, in the early age, I think everybody dreamt about being a professional footballer, but that was something I never really thought about too seriously. I just like loved kicking a ball about. So the school, as they were in those days, that was the main focus of being a football. Best thing was to get into the school team first and foremost. That was a big, a big kick, getting picked for the school team. And then, there was a boys' club in Dumfries, which is still going, Greyston Rovers, which is a huge part of the boys' football in Dumfries. Um, they produced a lot of good players over the years. They they were the kind of the weekend stuff after the school football on the Saturday. You'd play with the, the boys' team on a Sunday. So, I a lot of good players, as I say, I mentioned one or two already. Ted McMinn, who was mm-hmm. played for Rangers, Ted. Ted played alongside us at Greyston Rovers. Um, Kevin Hetherington, who's unfortunately come to a wee bit of publicity recently with his diagnosis of having Alzheimer's. Kevin played for Air United in Queen of South for, for a long time. So, yeah, a lot of good players from this part of the world. Great. And you mentioned Queen of the South there. You, you get your opportunity in 1979 to sign for your local your hometown club. Did you have other opportunities to sign for professional clubs or was Queen of the South the only one at, the, at that point? I was a very, I was a late developer. I was tiny. When I was 16 years old, I was still only five foot two. So I was told I was always two wee. That was my, that was the excuses. But yes, I played with Queens just after, just to the end of my school years, sixth year at school. And I think I played about four games in the first team. But my mum and dad at that time had instilled that I needed an education and I decided to go to university. So I left I left Queen's and went down to Newcastle and had uh, spent three years down there doing a sports degree. Superb. I take, see, at that point, were you, were you frustrated? Did you have in your mind that I'm going to be a footballer and then all of a sudden that's kind of taken away from you or was football just a bonus thing for you? I think at that time I was... I was quite single-minded. I'd, I'd been at, I'd got four games in the first team, and then they had a the pre the following that pre-season before I went to uni. I thought they'd promised me games in the in the pre-season friendlies, and it never happened. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to uni instead. So mm-hmm. I just just say, right, I'll see you later. I was only signed as an amateur. I wasn't a pro at that time, and, and like I say, my mum and dad encouraged me to look to education, get a degree and then you can always come back to the football but I never really thought of that way I just thought, you know what, I'll just go and see see what happens mm-hmm. Went down to you, university Sorry, hi On you go, yeah, down in Newcastle Went Down in Newcastle and I think, to be honest when I look back, that's probably what made me a, gave me the chance to become a footballer because I went to uni and became a full-time footballer at uni, believe it or not I did right. a sports degree we had a I played every Wednesday for the uni, a Saturday for South non-league teams in the Northern League. And then a Sunday morning, I played in a, a very competitive pub league in Newcastle, which they paid you on a Sunday morning to play. So that subsidised subsidized my, my grant I was getting for university. So I was playing three times a week and it was, it was brilliant. I don't know how I managed to get my studies fixed fitted in with my football you know but it was I, to this day I still think that's how I became a footballer 
Mm-hmm. And then in 1984, you get the move back up the road to Air United, where you would make 75 appearances, scoring 12 goals. So by that point, did you think, maybe maybe I can make it in the game? Yeah, I'd had a couple of trials. I'd been down at Blackpool and Hibs. Uh, and I thought I did okay in both, but nothing really came of any of them. But then I got a chance. I went for a trial at Air United and it was a manager called George Caldwell played in a, a reserve game in, at Airdrie. And I must have done well enough because he, he asked me to sign after the game. So that was the start. And I thought, yeah, United was a good level. They were, there was only three leagues in those days. So we're in League One or Championship, one league below the Premier. And I thought, that's a good level to start with. And, you know, it was a, a good club. You know, they mm-hmm. just sold Stevie Nicholl to Liverpool. Alan McAnally had just gone to Celtic, I thought. Robert Connor had gone to Dundee. So there was good players that had moved on, I thought. They had a good reputation at that point of having a really good youth set up and developing players. So, yeah, I thought, give it a go. And I combined yeah. that with, I managed to get a job in the sports, sort of sports industry in a local sports centre. So I combined that with, with my football and I thought, well, I've got a start. Let's see where it goes. Yeah, and then it went to Clyde Bank. In 1987, you signed for Clyde Bank. So by that point, did you have other clubs interested in you or Clyde Bank the best option at that, at that time? Well, and I remember the manager at Air after the end of my first season had said that Celtic wanted to sign me, but they'd agreed to leave me for another season at Air. And, and this story of my life, I think it was um, Davy Hay got sacked, so he never, that was that. <laughs> But when I believe it or not, when I signed with Clyde Bank, some of the people listening might not remember, but they were actually a Premier League team when I signed for Clyde Bank, albeit part time. They were mm. in the Premier League, and it was uh, they were a they were a brilliant little club. I mean, mm. the the Steedman family ran the club, and uh, they were probably a bit before their time because they didn't have a manager as such. They had a first team coach, and Jack Steedman and his. Brothers, they picked the team, picked players, you know, signed players. And Sam Henderson, who was a coach, he just basically trained us and mm-hmm. took the team on a Saturday. But I'm quite sure you'll know yourself that the number of players that Clyde Bank produced over the years was, yeah. was amazing. Yeah. You know, right they yeah. signed me for £18,000. And then... I know we're going to come on to when I moved to Dunfermline, but I signed mm-hmm. for Dunfermline for £85,000. Yeah. So they made a, in two years, they've made nearly £70,000 profit, you know, and it's no bad for a wee club like Clyde Bank. Definitely. It's a shame what ended up happening to them, wasn't it, the, the late 90s? Yeah, it was. And actually, I went back to after I'd left St. Johnson, but I went back to Clyde Bank for the yeah. last time. A season and a bit, and uh, at that point they were selling. Kilbowie had been sold; they were playing mm-hmm. out at Dumbarton's old ground. And you could just tell the writing was on the wall there. Yeah, a shame, a shame. You mentioned obviously the pars, so we're about to move on to that. So, fifty-four appearances for Clyde Bank, and then the opportunity to join Big Jim Leishman at Dunfermline. So, how did that all come about? Well, it was again. It was probably. Looking back at that point, it was the best I'd been playing at Clyde Bank and I'd been down at Coventry on trial and they wanted to sign me. And they'd just won the FA Cup the previous year. So they were a big, quite a relatively big club. I'd been down there 
again, rumours of other teams, but nothing really was happening. And until I got a phone call, I was remember sitting at my work one night. It was a Sunday night. I got a phone call. It was Jack Steedman saying that Jim Leishman wanted to speak to you. He's given permission to speak to you. And I thought, finally, something might happen because I'd never been full time in all my prior to that time, and mm-hmm. I wanted to be a full time footballer. In fact, I'd considered joining the police because I wasn't getting anywhere in terms of the football. Oh, well, I didn't think I was getting anywhere. I was just playing part-time and I thought my career in this, working in a sports centre was getting in the road of my football and it was just becoming a bit... I was at a crossroads, but it came at a good time and Leash phoned me up. And Leash being Leash, as we all know, just incredible guy, so much respect for him and he made probably made me a very happy man in terms of mm-hmm. offering me a chance to go full time and sign with Dunfermline. So, yeah. Was, can you remember? Uh, can you remember what Jim said to you to try and to lure you to the club? <laughs> I some of the things he said, you would laugh. I mean, <laughs> we are, I actually agreed to come through and you know have a chat with him and have a look around. And I remember turning up at East End Park, and uh, he was in a. I think he must have been in his office. I had to wait for five minutes or so. But anyway, he came out and Leash being big, you know, the big handshake, the big hugs. And says, come on, I'll show you the new training ground that we're going to be building. <laughs> <laughs> and he took me up to what used to be a golf driving range. Yeah. And uh, it was the pitch. Well, it wasn't even a football pitch. I think they just put a couple of goals up. It was just a long grass, up and down, just an old field, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, this is going to be one of the best training facilities in Europe. And I'm like, all right. Uh, try to envisage this training facility that never really happened. But yeah, it, was, it wasn't so much what he said, Mike. It was, it was just his enthusiasm and his, his desire to make them firm in a success and compete with the – he wanted to compete with the big boys in the Premier League. Yeah. And uh, I just fell for it. And I yeah. just fell in love with the, the club. I just uh, as many did. the pitch. Yeah. Aye, and I've, I'm not embarrassed to admit that. I fell in love with the club as a, and the, everything about it. And I still to this day have such fond memories of my time at Dunfermline. Yeah. Well, we'll obviously yeah. touch on that and the, the, the magic big leash created at Dunfermline during that time. <laughs> but speaking of Eagle Glen, now we're, we're working on a, a little podcast special uh, regarding Eagle Glen. Um, what, what is your memories of? off the facility and, and using the facility because it's one of these there's no pictures exist of it there's very little information on it but from the research we've done Jim used it like you said in, in his promotional chat to, to lure players to the club and it never really come to anything did it? It didn't but you know what it did have it was a base that the players we were away from East End Park so we're away up I don't know, I think Dunfermline's grown to such an extent, it's probably a housing estate now, but at that time it was it seemed quite remote. It was outside the town. And it was it was like we could just relax up there and there was a changing rooms with a pool table, you know, we had uh, just an area where we could sit and eat eat a lunch, albeit we had a couple of old boys used to come up and make us rolls and stuff, but um it was just a place that we we just bonded. And I think, mm-hmm. to be honest, that was probably one of the best things Leash did at that time was get us up there and we bonded like I've never experienced 
before and the characters that were Big Norrie, John Watson, Ray Farmingham, Raymond Sharp, Big Westy, you know, the list I could go on and on, Bobby Smith. Mm. Uh, it was just incredible. And we, we would just all sit in these, either the changing room or the kind of pool room. And we just we just got on so well as a group. And that definitely had such a bearing on ultimately the success that we had with Leash. Yeah. You know? So, so going back to joining the club, it was a club record fee at the time, 85,000. Yeah. On, on the 2nd of March, 1988, do you remember your debut just a couple of days later? I do. It was against was it Rangers or Celtic. I think it was Celtic. It was Celtic, yeah. Celtic at East. Because I know we played Rangers on the Saturday. So my first two games were Celtic mm. and then Rangers. And uh, I was thrown in at the deep end, which, why not? I was a record signing, as you said. And uh, how, how did you find that, David? Was that a massive step up? Was it a struggle or...? I think the two, obviously you're playing against two of the best teams in Scotland, so it was mm-hmm. a, it was always a struggle whenever you played Rangers or Celtic, but I know we lost both games, but I didn't think we, we didn't let ourselves down, although I think there was only 10 games left when I signed, so we're, mm-hmm. we were on the verge of going down, if not officially down at that point, but yeah, I think Lee should obviously accepted at that point that we're probably going to go down, but he was looking to build and make sure we came straight back up. But yeah. it was, having played Premier League with Clyde Bank, albeit it was only for maybe three quarters of a season, I hadn't really, it, hadn't really experienced it that much. So it was a challenge and it was a tough challenge against these really good teams. But yeah, it was where I wanted to test myself and where I wanted to play. And, you know, and I thought, you just have to go on with it. You know, you've mm-hmm. signed. I, I was delighted to have signed. I think the record fee was, I never really thought about that. It wasn't until later on that somebody said, I think Lee should yeah. say to me, I was a record signer and thought, what an honour that is. Yeah, until um, a certain S fan Cosma comes to the club, which we'll uh, touch on. S fan, I blew me out of the water with that one. <laughs> <laughs> just, a, just a little bit. Uh, like you mentioned, we unfortunately got relegated that year, but the following season was 88 89. Uh, which was a good season for the club. So we're back in the first division and obviously we're, we're gunning for promotion to get back to the Premier League. Uh, that season you played 41 games and the club won 22 out of 39. Now, I, wa- I wanted to start on that pre-season. There was a, an away trip to Bordeaux. <laughs> if, if you've got any stories about that one, because I've heard a few from, from Big Leash. I well, one of the... It was, a, again, what an experience. You know, we... I thought I'd hit the big time. I think we all did. We all, apart from some of the lads who'd played at, like, uh, the D United, Stuart BD, John Holt, Bobby Smith, they'd, they'd obviously played at the highest level. They'd probably experienced things like that. But a lot of us never been abroad with a team to play. And I think, obviously, we went to Bordeaux and ultimately resulted in that link between Bordeaux and Dunfermline and mm. George and this fan signing. But prior to that, we'd, when we were going, typical, with the air traffic control strike. So we had to, instead of flying straight to Bordeaux, we ended up getting trains, planes and automobiles. So we went <laughs> Edinburgh to London, London to the Dover, then the ferry across. That was funny. Old Joe Nelson, that was hilarious. The old kit man, rest in peace, Joe. But we were, um, Joe got seasick going across in the ferry. <laughs> <laughs> The boys were all sitting inside in one of the 
restaurant areas, and Joe was poor. Joe was sitting outside being sick, and all I can remember is the boys knocking the window off on Joe pies or sandwiches. Every time he looked up, he just went and threw up again. But but no, the the trip was it was a great experience. But um, well, the funniest thing I remember is actually when we came back, and Jim Leishman had a team meeting to apologise. He said, listen, lads, I know it wasn't what we thought. It was a, you know, the travelling wasn't great. And then he said, but the biggest disappointment for me was it was 2.50 a pint, lads. <laughs> <laughs> and Leash's old imitable style, his Fife accent is 2.50 a pint. And the boys are like looking at each other and said, really? Did he say that? And he, repeat, <laughs> he repeated it. And it was like, that just sums Leash up. You know, he was just trying to make a make the most of what had been a tough week's mm-hmm. travel and stuff. But he just tried yeah. to make it a a laugh and a joke. But but no, it was it was a really good experience. Although we get battered, I think it was six 0 the board. Yeah, traveling on it. They had an air conditioned coach because we had to travel a couple of hours to the game. They were all sitting in the air conditioned coach and. We were sitting in this, I think it was a service bus with no air conditioning. <laughs> Boys were sitting in their shorts with their shirts off. It was absolutely roasting hot. <laughs> not ideal for a game. No, not the um, best preparation, is it? No, no, but <laughs> it, it was, uh, you just took it, just accepted it. Brilliant, mate. And then, like I said, that was a really good season. We're gunning for promotion. And then towards the end of that season, uh, a game up at Station Park, you score an absolute belter. Uh, what, what's your memories of that one? I remember, obviously, the goal still probably won my the highlights. I'll, I'd like to tell people that was a goal that won his promotion, but mm. it wasn't It wasn't really. We still had a couple of games left, but I think it gave us that wee bit of breathing space. We weren't firing all cylinders, I think. We'd, kinda, we'd got good results, but we hadn't been playing consistently well. Mm. But And, and Forfar was always a difficult place to go in those days, and I remember I'd actually hurt my shoulder a couple of weeks previously because I don't know if you, if you remember the celebrations. I've only actually put one arm up. I wasn't doing my Alan Shearer impressions. It was because my, my left arm was still a bit stiff from being injured. So I'd usually put both arms up to celebrate, but I only put the one arm. But, but no, that was, that was a big win for us, a huge mm. win. It meant we had two home games left, Clyde and Meadowbank. Yeah. And we only needed two points over the two games to, to win promotion. So Yeah. And we, we, uh, we kind of stumbled the following week against Clyde, didn't we? And then we did. Uh, we did. Uh, we were, I remember we were we were kind of winning one nil, but we're mm-hmm. it wasn't a great game. And then Clyde got a bizarre goal, which I think Big Westdale to this day will tell you he was fouled, but mm-hmm. he's, he's kinda of caught the ball and he's kinda of stumbled back and the referee's given it. So I uh, we stuttered a wee bit. Um, we'd all like to have got the job done, obviously, that day, but yeah. it meant we had another week. I remember that the week of that Meadowbank game was mm. it was so stressful. I remember we were all, you could just feel the tension building and because we were so close to getting over the line and obviously we didn't do it against Clyde, so that the week leading up to it was just really stressful. And yeah, I think a few of us probably didn't sleep as well as we had and and I'm sure Leash. I'm sure Leash took us to. I think we stayed overnight at a hotel before the, the actual game against Medibank. Yeah. Got us all together at Eath Castle, I think it was. 
just to try and get us together and try and relax. But I think that added to the stress, to be honest. But it was, but no, that the Saturday and turning up at East End Park, it was 11, 12,000, whatever it was, yeah. against a team who brought nobody. Let's be honest, it was purely Dunfermline fans. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, well, we'll probably go, that'll be the next question, probably. Yeah. I remember about the. Yeah, what's your memories off of that day and then following on from that, the celebrations that evening? Well, I, if you can uh, remember the celebrations, much. <laughs> the celebrations were something to behold. Um, the game itself wasn't great. It wasn't great. But when I look back, I remember walking out onto the pitch with the team and I looked at Norrie McCarthy, Ian Westwater, and particularly uh, John Watson, and I thought, and Ross Jack, I thought, We'll win. We'll get. We'll get promotion because we've got these characters are going to make sure we, we get up. Mm-hmm. And sure, I know Norrie's God rest his soul, but um, Norrie was such a leader, such an influence. Never say die. And I remember him saying before the game, "We'll we'll get promoted. Don't worry about it." Because I think you could see in my eyes, I was like, "What if we blow this?" You know. But him and uh, John were obviously big pals. And, uh, yeah. It was so fitting that Winker scored the goal that got us got us promoted because mm-hmm. that guy is just such a legend along with his yeah. best pal. The two of them have played such a huge huge part in my time at Dunfermline, but also mm-hmm. I think in the history of the club. Yeah. I don't think I don't think these two guys will ever be replaced. And that's no disrespect to anyone else that's been before or after, but I think these two guys were just they made Dunfermline for me. They were the kind of guys who loved the club, they lived in the area, they just eat, drank and slept in Fernwin and it was yeah. just such an honour to be able to play with the two of them. Mm. You mentioned they two, they two characters. Who? What other characters were, were at the club at that point, Davey? Oh, I think as I said to you before, that the, the bond that we created, they just seemed to be able to pick the right type of people to come to the club and Ray Farningham, who's still to this day one of my best friends, Ray joined the club. Uh, and there, there was three of them that used to travel from Dundee, Ray, Ross Jack and Stuart Rafferty. They were another three guys who were just brilliant to have around. You know, they were laugh a minute, they were joking, but they were really good footballers, good professionals. Ian Westwater, Ian, I know West had a couple of spells at the club. He was another one who just... He just loved the club and he was, I thought he was a brilliant goalkeeper. And I know Andy Rhodes came and maybe kind of pushed that Ian out of the number one spot. But Westy was another great character. Um, but there's a Bobby Smith mm-hmm. who's unfortunately not with us, Graham Robertson. And there's another lad that I traveled with every day who became really close. I mean, I've never heard from him, for, never seen him. As, Raymond Sharp, Sharpie, he's yeah. absolutely as daft as a brush, but a really Ray, good football player. Ray Sharp, someone we've been trying to find for a long time through the former Players Association, and we just cannot locate him. Nobody knows where he is. Nobody's heard from him. So I've never heard from him either. I think I remember somebody did say to me, I can't remember when and where, but thought he was in London area. But Sharpie was Sharpie was one of these. He had everything that. At that time, he got a Scotland cap, the under-21s. Yeah. You know, and he was strong, he was quick, he was left-sided. And him and I played on that left side together. And 
regardless of travelling together, we had a we had a decent kind of relationship on the pitch as well as off the park. And mm-hmm. I'd love to catch up with him, but like you say, I've, nobody seems to know where he is. But yeah. well, if we can find him, David, we'll, we'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another another player I wanted to chat about from that season, and unfortunately, you know, the tragedy that following summer was Gary Riddle. What was your memories yeah. of Gary? Gary was again just he was moved down from Aberdeen and a player that he really took to the area he loved locally. He liked a night out, Gary. I remember Gary used to preen himself in front of the mirror after training. Brilliant guy. And I I can remember to this day the news. I was actually on holiday in San Francisco of all places. And I got a phone call from my mother to say she'd heard the news that Gary had died and collapsed during a half marathon. It was absolute, I couldn't believe it. I mean, 21-year-old, I think, 22, maybe, yeah. like 122, fit as a fiddle. You know, he was, he was a real prospect. I think, should, I think Gary had been an under, maybe an under-18 Scotland cap or something, youth cap, yeah, anyway. Correct. And Aberdeen, yeah. as they were in the 80s and the 90s, were a big, big club. And uh, Gary took that chance to leave a huge club, but it must have been difficult for him to leave his home area mm-hmm. and come down to Dunfermline. But who knows what Gary could have achieved in his playing career, but he was, a, he was just starting to establish himself beside Norrie. And yeah. uh, obviously the, the tragedy occurred. and It really was heartbreaking. And yeah, as I'm sure we'll probably speak about again, it wasn't the first, of it wasn't course. the first to lose in my time at Dunfermline or my time mm-hmm. um, after that as well. But yeah, well, the following season, 89 90, the club do return to the Premier League, and everything really seems to be on the up. You make 32 appearances that year, uh, and the ha- average home gate rises to 10,978. Um, what, what I wanted to start with was. Did you notice the, the real progression starting that summer with, with you like Sir George O'Boyle and Doug Rugby, Stuart Rafferty? Obviously, Esfan Cosma following, like real star players start to come into the club. Yeah, and I think it was my being the first kind of time I'd been full time. When you're part time, you kind of got used to the turnover of players at a part time club, but when you went full time, I, I remember thinking it was quite. It was quite difficult to lose some of the players that you'd been with every day, you know, throughout the season. But you're right. I think the club obviously sent a message out about wanting to compete at the top level, and for obvious reasons, they had to had to better the squad. And you're right; they brought in some experience. George was just potentially, if it hadn't been for his injuries, I think George would have played at a higher level than he did. This fan. Well, I think as everybody knows the Dunfermline fans, what, mm-hmm. what we think of this fan. Brilliant guy, quite a funny guy. For you know, I think he knew a lot more than he let on, but talented, talented footballer. You know, and we used to laugh about it. we did all the work and this fan got all the glory, but he deserved it. He was just such a talent. But yeah, when you started seeing players like that coming into the club, it, you upped your game because either went with it or you'd get left behind mm-hmm. you know and obviously some players left as I said but you know I was desperate I wanted to stay at the club and 
I loved every minute I was there. I know I'd had probably been in and out of the team um, that following season, but it was to be part of a club that was getting good big crowds competing. I mean, we beat Celtic and we beat Rangers. Yeah. And we're, I remember pushing Aberdeen every time. We, we were never, we were never battered by anyone really. Mm-hmm. I can remember. I know we obviously we lost to Rangers in a cup tie, but we were always competing against. In, that, in those days, Rangers, Celtic, Hearts, Hibs, Aberdeen, yeah. Dundee United, they were they all had teams full of international players. You know, every team, Dundee United, everybody knows what they were like. Hibs, Hearts, they had all really John Robertson, your John Collins, you know, players like that. that yeah. You know, the level of football, and I believe in the time I was at the Fairman was a really good standard. Definitely. And after about 14 games, we were sitting we're not sitting top of the league. <laughs> we're now we had a party. Leash had a party in, in the, the East End Park one after training. We had a big cake and well, I'm doing with beers and stuff. Cause, but we had a party to celebrate them fell and being top of the Premier League. <laughs> and why and why not? Why you not exactly? Was, yeah. I can't well, one, que- one question I asked Giorgio Boyle on, on a recent podcast was was there a feeling with that group of players and sitting top of the league after quarter of the season that you guys could achieve anything or was it always the aim is just to stay in this league? You know, I, I honestly can't remember getting targets set. Mm-hmm. I think, I think um, we knew we'd never win the league, obviously, with the, the teams that were in it, but we didn't certainly didn't have an inferiority complex. You know, and... And it was guys like George and this fan and, you know, Big Nori that made sure that, you know, you didn't feel we didn't belong at that level, you know, that we deserved to play at that level. And, you know, and that's, I think that was a big part of Leash's mm-hmm. mindset that we, we had to believe that we deserved to be playing at that level. And, and I think for the next couple of years anyway that we did. Yeah, you know, def- definitely. And that was without, you know, if the teams I've mentioned all had international-based players. We didn't. We only had George and this fan, really. Mm-hmm. The rest of us were all journeymen, if you like. That's a, I think that's a horrible statement. Journeymen were better than that. But, you know, we didn't have a, we weren't sprinkled with internationalists, whereas yeah. all the other teams seemed to have, you know. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier we had some unreal results that season, you know, beating Celtic, beating Rangers. But one iconic game that supporters still talk about is the, the 5-1 against St Mirren and the, the Cosma hat-trick. Now, you came on for Cosma on, in that game. So no, know, no pressure. I, I, no pressure. No, I think... Uh, here's me going on thinking the fans were giving me a stand innovation going on. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it was... I think this fan just... Everything he touched that day turned to gold and I think we were, I think we were maybe one each at half-time. I can't remember mm. exactly, but... yeah. Yeah, he's gone on, he scored a hat-trick and, you know, I think if he hadn't already endeared himself to the, the fans, that certainly put him into celebrity status at Dunfermline. Yeah, and 100%. He, his, his touch and his vision was just, it was just great to play with and you just had to admire how good a footballer he was and, and it saddens me when I read about his move to Liverpool and how he's voted one of the worst signings at Liverpool, I think. That's just that's not fair. He, he wasn't a mm-hmm. bad footballer. He was a top player. 
you know, maybe at the wrong time at Liverpool, but um, for Dunfermline, well, his, his mural's still up in the... Yeah, cult still hero. There anyway. Aye, so. Yeah, still there. So we finished that season, and then season 90-91, you make 36 appearances, so you, you do well again. But the big, big talking point that summer is when Big Jim's removed from his job. What, what's your memories of, uh, of that? And Ian Munro obviously coming in. That was bizarre. It really was. And I know, I think Ian, having spoken to him years later, I think he probably admitted they got it wrong. Because for me anyway, Jim Leishman and Ian Monroe was a perfect combination. Ian was a top coach. He really was. Jim was, Jim, and I say I'm not being critical of him, Jim wasn't a coach. Jim was a motivator. He was a figurehead. You know, he was the, he was Mr. Dunfermline. But I think Ian maybe felt he didn't get the credit for the amount of work he put in in terms of coaching the players. And, but anyway, that summer, we were on pre-season. We are actually in Ireland at Portadown. And I remember Jim and Ian had to leave the training uh, camp to go come back to Dunfermline for a board meeting. And the players, we were left on their, to their own devices and of course, you imagine what 20 footballers are doing in and there's no manager. And I think <laughs> I, I remember going golfing. I think a load of us went golfing. I think Ross Jack went fishing. You know, and I mean, we didn't let ourselves down. We didn't, we weren't getting drunk and stuff, but we just we left our own devices, obviously not knowing what was going on until I think the following day we were told that we should left. And but he was moving upstairs. Mm-hmm. I think that was the initial. I think that was the initial appointment. He was moving upstairs, and Ian was going to be first team manager. Did it cause a bit of friction? Uh, bit of friction, yeah. yeah. I remember. I remember actually Jimmy Nicholl and some of the senior players were asked to write down who we wanted as manager. Wow! That was an instruction from the board. And Incredible. I remember and myself, Ray Farmingham and Norrie all refused to sign. We wouldn't we wouldn't sign the paper and say who we wanted. We just and Jimmy, to be fair to Jimmy, he was put in an awkward spot, but he, he respected our decision and we didn't want to and I think it was it was wrong of the club to expect mm-hmm. the players to choose who they wanted as manager. And I think that Crazy. to me that was the start of the kind of not a decline as such, but that season, it was a tough season, although it was probably the best season I had personally as a player at Dunfermline. Um, I think that was the start of a bit of a decline for the club. Mm-hmm. You know, I think well, history will show this. We stayed up that year. We finished eighth following. that season. Yeah. that's And then, I'm not saying, but a few of us left after that. End of that season, myself, Ray, yeah. Ross Jack, um, Paul Smith mm-hmm. I think Westy as well I think there was a yep. few a good number of players left the club and I remember Jockey Scott took over after that I'm sure it was Jockey Scott he did. took over when they got rid of him yep. I think Jockey had, I remember Jockey Scott saying to Ray Farling actually that they should never let that, that group of players go at that time um, why, why do you think Ian Munro let so many of you guys go did he, did he feel you were Leishman guys, probably. I think that. Yeah. And again, I got on 
okay with Ian, although, I mean, I think I had to prove myself time and time again with Ian. I remember getting player of the year. I, I presented on the pitch against, I think it was Celtic, and I wasn't even playing. You know, I'm like, but I think Ian did feel that that group of players are probably Leash's, Leash's signings. And if, I think the turnover of players at that point, that probably was the group that were left that Leash had brought in. So, because Big John had gone as well. I think Norrie had actually gone out and loaned to Air United for a spell yeah, as well. Correct, correct yeah. You know, I, I can't ever imagine Norrie not being in the development team, but there was a spell. and So uh, that group, I think Ian probably, and I can understand now looking back, I think he wanted to put his own stamp on the club, get the players, the type of players he wanted into the club, but obviously that season, the following season, just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After they get sacked, Jockey came in, but they, although they got to the cup final, they get relegated as well. I'm sure yeah, if I remember indeed. right. Yeah, correct. It was just a chaotic couple of years, wasn't it? And the crowds yeah. go from 11,000 home gate to half. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Walking Down the Holbeath Road. We would also like to thank our sponsors at Inverkeething Hillfield Swifts 2017s. The Swifts are an SFA quality marked community group and have competitive teams for every age group from mini kickers through to amateur level football. So if you're interested in youth football, why not check out their website www.swiftsfc.com. But what what I was going to touch on was obviously you've mentioned them a fair bit in this podcast, but Big Leash. What what's what's your you got any stories about Big Leash or what is your abiding memory of working for Jim? Just how he made you feel. If you if you felt down, if I remember driving it, I know that I was Sharpie wouldn't let me feel I was down, but if you weren't playing and you're driving to training and you're like as soon as you walked in, Big Leash was just there with a big grin in his face and just his, his methods were quite straight, quite simple methods, but very effective. I think I'd, after I left him, I'll come back to, I'll just go off on a bit of a tangent, but I, I, I moved to Thistle after Dunfermline and had another mm-hmm. manager of similar ilk, John Lambie. And the two of them, people are arguing, they're the coaches, but the, see the success that both of those managers had. It was incredible. Yeah. Leash, Leash won umpteen promotions, champions, and John Lambie was the same, but but go back to Leash, he just made you feel good about yourself, you know, and he, he took all your worries away. And he, I think it's, it just made you feel that you had a place at the club, either even if you weren't playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the some of his antics, I remember, I remember some of the players will tell you, you don't always remember games as much as you remember your trips away with the boys at the end of the season. And I remember going to Tenerife and Leash was there and. I was I was struggling to get there because my wife at the time uh, she wasn't she wanted to go on holiday but it kind of clashed with the boys holiday and I said to Lee look I, I don't think I'll be able to go and he's like I'll sort it so he phoned up my my wife and said listen I believe Davey might not be able to come he says he needs to come he's got signing talks when we're having all our signing talks when we're in in uh, Tenerife never a sign in talking <laughs> in place but you know he would do things like that for you and, and uh, he would, on that trip remember he disappeared for three days never saw him and remember he came in one night we're sitting all the boys are sitting around the, 
the hotel lobby and Leash walks in and he says, I've been to a rave, lads, up in the mountains. I got lost. And <laughs> it was just typical Leash. You know, Ian Monroe's sitting shaking his head and Big Leash is bouncing about with the shades <laughs> and the shorts on. He says, it's great, lads, it's great, it's great. That was his favourite word, great. Superb. But, uh, uh, he's uh, not changed. He's not changed. I've been to Magaluf a few times with him, so uh, he's, oh, uh, he's right. definitely not changed. Uh, no, I, had, uh, I think my two <laughs> my two children have met him in their their, uh, <laughs> of course. their profession, and they just said exactly like as you say. He's just he's never changed. He just nah, just such a there. such a brilliant guy. He really yeah. is. Is there any team talks that kind of stand out for you? Because he's he's well known for his his motivational team talks and. Eh, oh, you put me on the spot. I remember one team talk that um, he obviously had it prearranged. Do you remember Trevor Smith? Trevor was yes. another good player. Trevor travelled with Raymond and I because we all kind of lived in the Stirling area. So we used to travel together. Anyway, I remember Trevor had been sent off the week before. I think it was... I can't remember who, maybe Aberdeen were playing, but anyway, Trevor had been sent off, so he was suspended. And Leash had the team in and was sitting in the dressing room, and he's, right, lad, sit down, sit down. He's got his blazer on with a badge. He's like, go down, thumping his chest. What's that, lads? What's that? And it's, boys are throwing random answers at him. That's your heart, Gaffer, playing for the club, but your heart. No, no, no. What is it? And he kept, he went five or six responses. And eventually he says, I can't remember who the last person is. We'll say it was Norrie. He says, Norrie, what's that? And he's punching his chest. Norrie's like that. Are you giving your all, Gaffer? No, is it F? And he brought this picture of Trevor Smith out of his top pocket, <laughs> threw it in the deck and says, it's that F and Trevor Smith that gets sent off last week. And if any of you get sent off this week, you'll be getting that as well. It's like, brilliant. And the boys are like just in stitches, you know, but. Again, just relaxes all you guys, eh? If you're just relaxes, a bit stressed. And... I remember having a, him and Big Dig Rugby were having a set to one half time and they were still having a go and the referee had already been in and said, to get us out for the second half and Leash and Doug are still at each other's throats, you know, but but I do remember another one that I'll quickly we playing Meadowbank and uh, Leash and Stuart Beattie had a bit of a disagreement at half time and Leash started lunging and the dressing room as it always was, it was soaking wet. It was a wet day, so there was water and everything and, and Leash slipped. And as he slipped, he's grabbed Stuart Beattie and the two of them are rolling about on the dressing room floor and everybody else trying to pull them apart. But they weren't fighting as such. They just happened to get entangled with each other. But it was, again, you went out laughing about it, you know. And mm-hmm. I can't remember if we beat Meadowbank that day, but we certainly had a laugh. That's for sure. Fantastic. And uh, like we started on, you made your debut against Celtic. You then play your last game for the club. Uh, against Celtic on the 13th of August 91. I take it you were in a position at that point, you were looking to leave and were you frustrated? I was frustrated. I wasn't looking to leave, to be honest. I, as I said to you, I think I'd won a number of player of the years that season mm-hmm. that had just ended and I came back really, I was, one thing I would say, I'd kept myself fit and, you know, I, had, I didn't drink. I made sure I was always at the front in the runs and that, you know, 
I prided myself on my fitness levels. Maybe technically wasn't the best, but I made sure I was the fittest. And I came back and the right was on the wall and during the pre-season and then I wasn't in the team and I thought I'd gone from being player of the year to no getting a game. And then as soon as Ian Renault phoned me and said that Patrick Thistle were interested in you, I knew I thought, well, what's why why would I stay when you obviously don't want me? So Yeah. And then I looked at it, I thought a lot of my colleagues that I'd mentioned earlier were leaving and it wasn't the same feel and I, but I thought I had the courage of my own convictions I thought you know I'll go there and I'll, although they were playing in the championship I thought the the deal that John Lambie was well the deal that he had promised me that's another story but anyway <laughs> we'll, thought, we'll get on to John Lambie well, <laughs> <in a second. laughs> the deal was it was a good enough I wasn't losing if we were winning, I wasn't losing money financially. So I thought mm. I'll drop down a level. And as I say, the, the promise of trying to get them back up or the intentions of getting back up, I thought I'll give it a go. And yeah. it worked out perfectly for us. We get unfortunately Dunfermline. We we changed places with Dunfermline. Mm-hmm. Dunfermline went down and Thistle came up. So yeah. it was, I don't like saying this because I've, I've still got a lot of affection for Dunfermline, but it was actually, personally, I was. It's quite a satisfying feeling that I'd made that good, right decision to go to a club that were going up the yeah. way, and, and I thought, well, if hadn't let us all go, then family might have stayed in that league. But yeah, who, who, knows, who knows? Who knows what would yeah. have happened? Um, talking about your time at Dunfermline, kind of wrapping that up, you played 122 games, scoring 11 goals. So, uh, any games or goals that that really stand out for you that still stick in the memory? Obviously, the one that we've mentioned previously is the one that had the most meaning for me is scoring the winner at Forfar to get us virtually over the line. But I, I seem to have a knack of scoring against Aberdeen. I scored a couple of, I think, two or three times against Aberdeen. I remember scoring at East End by a header from, felt like it was outside the box, but that's just my memory. It was a, <laughs> talking to this fans. This fans crossed it and I've scored and we went one up. But again, if you rem- I don't know if you remember, but that was the night, I think, when Ian Jess scored a hat-trick. Yeah. Um, yeah. He absolutely ran ragged, ran riot that day. But the goal, it was on sports scene. That, I know, that's probably why I remember it. It was on the telly, so that, that one sticks in my mind. Um, but I, I, probably one disappointment. I wasn't prolific enough at that time. I know it was 11 and 120-odd games, but from a midfield mm-hmm. player, I, I'd like to have scored more. But, um... well, one question I was going to ask you, Davey, a, a few fans I've spoken to who followed the club in that era felt that you were a bit of a boo boy for some supporters. Did you did you feel that at the time? Because the type of player you were? I do remember. In fact, it was one of the goals. It was leading up to a score. But I remember we played Queen of the South in the League Cup at this, early on in the season, maybe the second or third game. And I remember getting booed on. And I thought, I was, to be honest, I was had, hadn't had a great start to the season and I'd been subbed and I got booed on. We are getting beat 1-0 and I went on to that. My first touch, I think I scored actually with my first touch. And I remember as I scored, I fell. But as I fell, I got back up. I, I gave it the old, that mm-hmm. to the crowd. And to be honest, that changed. But after that, they, they got right on behind me and I, that's the season I had 
I ended up winning three or four player of the years, but there was that wee spell that there was that wee spell that I was I did feel I was wasn't popular mm-hmm. and but then I think back if it wasn't me it was someone else. You yeah. know and Tough fans are, I remember it was the first time I'd had I'd been booed in my career and I, I did feel I took it not my not my confidence and mm-hmm. and I remember speaking to Leash about it and and he was right. He said, "It'll turn. You just have to dig in, and it will turn for you." And sure enough, I went and won a number of players, player of the mm-hmm. year, uh, supporters, player of the years, which was yeah. which was a great honour. And you know, I, I think I did leave the club. Probably at least had seen the best of me at that time. Brilliant. And you, you mentioned you joined Partick Thistle in '91. And you spent two years there. So John Lambie, another great character oh, of the game. So any funny stories about, about John? <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty. No, there's plenty. It's weird to start. Um, I think the one of the funniest was when, again, a team talk. We'd, we were playing Rangers and he was, John Lambie, he was a bit very similar to Leash in some respects, but his language was a bit more colourful than Leash's was, to be honest. But we were playing Rangers and he came in with the team and he was, Going through the team, right? Here's Rangers team today. It's Gorham and went through the back four. Richard Goff, Terry Butcher. They got to the midfield and they had a, what was Russia at the time, they had a, they had a Russian player in the middle of the park and he couldn't say, he could not say Mikhailachenko. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he tried umpteen times and they ended up saying, ah, that Russian B, you know, and it was just, so typical of John Lambie, that Russian. Anyway, moving on, and it was just great, <laughs> just his whole character, and that along with the fact before that he'd already brought in a tray of thirteen. I think it was thirteen. Two subs in those days. Thirteen champagne glasses <laughs> with a bottle of champagne, and he's pouring champagne. Right, lads, this is a celebration. The first time I've played Rangers. I think it's a time to celebrate, you know, and the boys are like, of course, a few of them quite happy to have a drink of champagne, but it was just the bizarre things that he would do, you know. But again, Superb. like I said earlier, between Jim Leishman and John Lambie, they must have a, a huge amount of successes and promotions yeah. and championships, you know. Fantastic. So, yeah, you spend two years at, at Thistle and then you move to St. Johnson. So, What's your memories of playing up at St. Johnson? Obviously, there was a period where St. Johnson and Dunfermline were battling for the for the first division. Yeah, it didn't work out for me initially because on my debut, I ruptured my Achilles tendon twenty minutes into my debut against Dundee United, and I missed the whole season. I think Jeff Brown will still be cursing me. I think they paid a hundred grand for me, wow. and it was. That was a lot of money in those days, and I never kicked a ball for the. And unfortunately for St Johnson, we actually got relegated at the end of that season, which you know was gutting for me, not having kicked a ball and not being able to do anything about it. But yeah, that ended meant we were playing in the first division as it was. Um, we done Fairman; they were there as well. So yeah. I remember having a few few battles against Dunfermline. Fairman. Actually, I got concussed at East End Park one game playing for St Johnson I remember coming to in the dressing room and I was asking the boys what was the score and they were like tell me where to go don't be what you on about 
I honestly couldn't remember. We got beat 2 1. And I could not remember what the score. I couldn't I remember coming to, and it's like a bizarre feeling that I could not remember anything about the game. But um, I think that's funny. Game. The, number of, the number of players that, you know, I'd, I'd played with St. Johnson and Dunfermline, there was quite yeah. a number. Um, well, I, was, I was going to touch on there that I think that game you're, you're speaking about was George O'Boyle's first game back at East End Park uh, after right. he had controversially left the club. So we spoke to George recently, uh, who's got a lot of fond memories from his time at Dunfermline. But what was yeah. George like as a player, especially obviously your time at St. Johnson? George, I, I, I did listen to that podcast and it was really interesting. I didn't realise how much how difficult it had been for George at that time. You know, you, football's quite a selfish sport, you know, and you just think, you just look after yourself and, you know, as long as you're all right kind of thing. Although it's a team game, it's still quite selfish. And I didn't really think too much about it until I listened to George in the podcast and then it took me back to that time. And and I'm thinking, well, I was going back and I, I was fine. I'm, the fans were okay with me, but then I thought, well, they probably were okay with me because George was playing. Because George was a top, top player for, as we said earlier, for Dunfermline. And, and I know he didn't particularly want to leave. And St. John's at that time, I think uh, Billy Dodds had gone from St. John'son to Aberdeen. And I know Paul Sturrock was a big fan of George. And I remember it was on, it was off, it was on, it was off. And then, because being at St. John'son, the players were asking me what he was like. And mm-hmm. I said, oh, he's a top player. And, um, but eventually when he did come and he settled in that game at East End Park uh, he came in for some stick but that yeah. I'm sure George will realise it's only because he was so good for Dunfermline that the fans just hated the thought of him playing for someone else exactly you I think him. as a I think as a Dunfermline supporter David seeing him going to St Johnson and having the next three seasons were probably the best of his career and just thinking that could have been with Dunfermline is, is really frustrating as a supporter. I know, and but I remember playing with George. It was a league. I'm sure we played. It was Wraith Rovers. It was at Kirkcaldy, but I think we were playing Cowd Beath in the cup tie. And that night, George got a horrendous injury. And I remember going over when he, he was on the deck. And I remember going over to see if he was all right. And the gash on his knee, I literally could see the bone in his knee. It was a horrendous injury. And I'm... I'm quite sure if George had avoided the injuries that he, he got at Dunfermline, no disrespect to St. Johnson, he wouldn't have gone sideways to St. Johnson. He'd have gone up the way to, Yeah. I don't know, I think, I, I think even Rangers, I think, he could, I think he could have played at Rangers. I, no, Billy Dodds, who was a top player, in my opinion, George was as good as Billy Dodds, mm-hmm. if not better, having played with the two of them. I think George could have played at Rangers. Billy did, and Billy had a great career, obviously, and he was a good, good player, but yeah. I think George was as good as Billy. You know, Definitely. So. Well, you're at St. Johnson till 1996. Now, talking about 1996, uh, we mentioned them a fair bit earlier, but obviously Norrie McCarthy passes away that January. What, what's your memories and how did you find out the news about Norrie? Well, you, I don't, you probably don't know this, actually. I was playing for St Johnston in the reserve game the Monday night of when Norrie died. I the end of the game, it was a, I'd been injured. Westy was in goals. I remember 
walking up towards Westy, who was picking his gloves and that up after the final whistle. And Dick Campbell had ran onto the pitch. And they got to Westy before me, and I could just see him, Dick Campbell, holding Westy's face, head and telling him something. And as I got there, Westy looked at me and said to me, Norrie's dead. And I'm like, I could not believe it. So ironically, I was back at East End Park when I heard the news. And it was in the days before mobile phones and everything. And I remember going home absolutely just numb. And I phoned Ray Farningham. Ray was at Dundee, I think, at that point. And I phoned Ray to tell him. And again, he, he couldn't believe it. And it was one of those moments that I'll never, ever forget. Mm-hmm. It was quite ironic, as I said, that I was back at East End Park when I heard the news. It yeah. was just, it's just one of these moments that you just can't believe has happened. Without a you doubt. And I think I think even to this day, Davey's he's obviously a sad loss and he'll never be forgotten. Never will be, and quite rightly so. And I know Dunfermline fans will keep that memory going for for generations to come. And it was, it was just, as I said at the start of our chat, he was the one guy that just, when I think of Dunfermline, even now, the first person I think about is Norrie. And that's mm-hmm. before Leash. That he was just an incredible guy. He had so much time for everybody. He, I was quite a shy guy when I came to the club and Norrie made sure I was all right. He would always be checking up on players. He used to phone me. Even when I left him, family, we kept in touch. We'd, we'd phone each other. And he was just oh, just a huge, huge loss to, first and foremost, his family, but also obviously the the fans in the, uh, in the club. And the family. town as well. Yeah. The town, yeah. Yeah, so you leave St. Johnson in 96 and you return to Clyde Bank, one of your first clubs. You then have a spell at Annan and then in 2002, a club I want to touch on. I spoke to David Bingham in length about this, your time at Gretna, the real fairy tale at Gretna. So, <laughs> wow. Where do you start? Well, where do you start? The, the most bizarre thing was that I came out of retirement and began playing again at 40-odd-year-old a full-time footballer. I don't think there's many people have been offered a full-time playing contract at 40-odd years old. And I think that in itself told you the way this story was going to go. It was just bizarre. But what I, and I know he got a lot of criticism and I think some of it's unjust. Some of it I accept. But Brooks Myerson was one of the most amazing guys I've ever met in my life. He was such such a generous individual. He just loved his football. He was totally committed to the club. Obviously, things ended the way it did, but for that period, up into including when we got promoted to Premier League, mm-hmm. it was just, the club was only going one way. We didn't have any setbacks. It was just promotion after, but three consecutive promotions. And I'll say to people, Rangers couldn't even do that. Rangers yep. fell at the final hurdle, and but Gretna could get three successive promotions. Okay, it became a bit of a laughing stock towards the end of that season, but to get to three successive promotions, a Scottish Cup, playing Europe, all in the space of um, 
kind of seven, eight years that I was there, it was just incredible. Mm. Uh, proper you know, fairy tale, wasn't it? It was, and I know, I think we went from everybody's favourite to everybody hated us, you know, that kind of thing. But as I said to people, you look at the number of, even, well, we're talking about Dunfermline. Dunfermline went into administration. Mm-hmm. Motherwell, Dundee, Harps, Hibs, you know, they've all gambled and failed. But Gretna, for whatever reason, they seem to get really criticised yeah. for the way they went about their business. And the yeah. large, people all argue they bought their they bought their way up the leagues, and to some extent, they possibly did. But I think the boys, like you mentioned, David Bingham, that David Bingham was a top top footballer. Yeah, he was a footballer. top player, brilliant footballer. You know, David Bingham would take that as an insult if somebody said they bought their way up the leagues because mm-hmm. some of his performances were incredible. You know, and big, other, big Kenny Duker up front as well, who big scored Kenny some amount a, of goals. Oh, he'd be, what a career he had. He ended up playing in the MLS. Yeah. On the back of scoring at Ibrox, just as a club in the administration. But that just summed Kenny's career up. It was just, you know, upwards. Every every season just got better for him. But he was playing with good players and he'd be yeah. the first to admit that. Yeah. So you after know. Gretna, you then have a wee cameo at Thrive Rovers and you become... The oldest player in Scottish football. But how did that all come about? How did why did you get back into playing? I remember when I lost my job at Morton. I'd, I'd gone once Gretna went into administration. I got the manager's job at Morton, uh, and that lasted just a year and a bit. Um, when I got sacked, I thought, "What am I going to do?" And Thrive asked if I'd like to come and do a bit of coaching, but I wasn't really up for it. But I said, "I'll come and play." thinking they'd see it as a joke but they took me up on that and ended up going to play and had a great wee spell there and we got into the Scottish Cup qualifying and we drew we got Stenish Muir ironically enough in the I think it'd be the third round so we went to Oakle View and I was playing midfield I became the oldest player to play in the Scottish Cup but I think there's an even more bizarre link to this so the game ended 2-2 and that was kind of early December. But that winter was one of the worst winters we'd had. It was, remember, the real bad snow? Yeah, I do, so yeah. The game, was that the, the beast re- from the east and all that as well? Aye. The game mm. was postponed, I think, up maybe 12 times because the, the game, just the weather was that bad. However, in between the first game and the replay, I then became manager of Stenhouse Muir. So I went from playing or three in the first game to managing Stenhouse Muir in the, in the replay. I think that my record maybe I'll get broken as the oldest player, but I don't think that that record of playing for one team and managing mm. the other team, I don't think that'll ever happen. Bizarre. No, definitely not. You touched on your spell at Morton as manager and obviously Stenhouse Muir. Did, when you retired, well, from playing or look towards the end of retiring, were you always interested in being a coach and be- becoming a manager or was it something that just kind of th- happened? It kind of just happened. It, my first experience of coaching, I'd left when I, my first retirement, I joined the SFA as a development officer. So I got into coaching, albeit kids level, but I did all my badges. And I, I, with that in mind, I thought if I ever got a chance, I'd like to give it a go. And So when I went to Annan, non-league, when I moved back to Dumfries, 
again, I was only there a couple of weeks and the, the manager gets sacked. So being an ex-player that played at a decent level, they thought I would be the perfect guy to take the club on and had a great wee spell at Annan and that gave me a real hunger for coaching. Um, and then when the whole Gretna thing came about is because they asked me to go as a player coach. So I went and played and I had the best of both worlds. I was playing and coaching and uh, had a really good relationship with Rowan Alexander for that period of time. And then unfortunately Rowan, things started to go belly up and Rowan got sacked and I got asked to take over and I got us over the line in the, to the Premier League but trying to keep us there was pretty much impossible but to answer your question I, I had that real burning desire to see what I could do as a coach ultimately I failed at a few clubs in terms of you know you're getting a sack but I keep convincing myself if Alex Ferguson and Jose Mourinho can get sacked then yeah, anybody can get sacked, you know, and, and it is becoming a job where there's no how long do you get, you know, it's it's just so difficult. There's I know it's a different league, but there's Watford sacked their manager again after yeah twelve games, you know, and you think Stephen Robinson, uh, not Stephen Robinson, uh, Graham Alexander and Motherwell get sacked before they even kicked the ball in the Premier League this year, and you think. You know, what chance have these guys got? Mm-hmm. You know, is it um, something that still interests you, getting back into coaching and, and managing, or is it something that you're quite happy to to leave it for now? I'd, I'd love to try and get another go at it, but I'm, I'm realistic enough to know it probably never happen. I'm actually I do some I'm scouting for Motherwell at the moment. I do match reports for the opposition, so I'm watching Premier League games every week and do, and it's given me a it's given me a different view on the game you know, I'm slightly removed from whatever game I'm going to so mm-hmm. there's no stress so, so I'm watching the game at a different from a different perspective and I yeah. think that's adding it's adding to my education but whether I'll ever get another chance to use that I very much doubt but um, I would love to try it again but I had a spell at Stenish Muir which is probably the hardest time in my life in terms of the COVID and trying to run a football team and no training facilities, no dressing rooms. Mm-hmm. I thought it was harsh to get judged on that one season where we played 18 games in about space of three months, you know, we're playing Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday. The Fairman would be the same. It was just of course. There was no fun. There was no no yeah. pleasure in that. But I get to be judged on that, I thought it was a wee bit harsh, but yeah. Any manager gets sacked, I'll tell you that is harsh, isn't it? But, of course. And you thought going to Bordeaux on a bus was, was hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of leads us on nicely to what what is Davy Irons doing these days? I'm a police officer um, based down in Lockerbie, which probably most people in the world will have heard of Lockerbie for a very unfortunate event. But um, I'm working in Lockerbie. Um, as a community officer and I work closely with the schools so I really enjoy my job um, I'm, as I say I'm based down here but along with that I've got that wee part time role with Motherwell as a you know, a opposition scout so Brilliant, do you get recognised Davey when you're in your police job? I do actually I, it's, um, it's quite nice actually to get noticed, in fact a couple of the games 
I've had to help police. One Dunfermline game a couple of seasons ago, I was in the away end and I get noticed by a number of people and then Dunfermline scored, we were celebrating, we were throwing my hat up and, and uh, it was really, it was lovely. It was really nice. Superb. To um, but I've, I think I've changed. My, my two older kids, are um, they're both in the media and my daughter in particular is getting, she's gone from being David Iron's daughter I'm now Amy Irons' his dad, so it's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so no, it's um, it's still nice if people remember. You. I don't know how much longer that'll go on for, but uh, it gives you a wee warm feeling that people obviously remember you. As, I must have had yeah. some kind of impact on their their lives yeah. that they do remember me. You know, you'll always be remembered at East End, and you're welcome any time as well, Davey. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, just to wrap this one up, uh, we do a top five at the end of the podcast. So this applies to your time at, at the pars only. So yeah. we'll start off the most memorable game you can remember. It has to be the, the game against Meadowbank at home when we won promotion. That was the first championship I'd ever won. And it's still my favourite moment in football, winning promotion with Dunfermline. I've got, I was going to say, I've still got a medal, but I I put the medal in my dad's coffin when he died and that shows how and that meant so much to me and I know how much it yeah. meant to my dad he used to love coming to East End Park he'd drive up from Dumfries every Saturday or well every alternative Saturday so so that game without doubt is the most memorable with Dunfermline Superb good choice uh, who was your best mate during your time at the club? It was Raymond Sharp initially because um, we travelled together and we had some crazy Crazy moments. Raymond loved his fast cars, and I've had a few scary moments with Ray. I remember coming back for Paisley at Love Street. He had a wee Renault Five Turbo, but he got it. He got it chipped, which meant it was an absolute flying machine. And we coming on the motorway, we hit this a lorry wheel that was you couldn't see it, and it literally we hit it. We bounced, mm-hmm. and the whole as we hit the deck, the whole roof caved in. And honestly, it was an unbelievable moment. We're stuck in the middle of the motorway with this Renault 5 turbo basically caved in. And Sharpie's like, all he's bothered about is his car. I'm like, never mind the car. We're stuck in the middle of the motorway. But, but um, Some certainly Ray Sharpie initially, but it's, it's going on to be Ray Farlingham since um, probably halfway when Ray joined. Um, we just hit it off and... To this day, I'd still regard him as one of my best friends in football. He's, he's a top, top guy. He was a top player, and I maybe didn't see the best of him at Dunfermline, but we both went to Thistle as part of the deal, and um, we had a successful period there. And Ray's gone into coaching, and he was a top coach. I think he was probably was unfortunate he never got the recognition he deserved either. But between Ray Sharp and Ray Farmingham, they're my two, two mates. Brilliant. Who was the best player you played against? Best player I ever played against, this might be a bit of a random one, but Trevor Stephen for Rangers, who, I don't know, people might not remember, he actually went to Marseille for some four or five million pounds. But was, was he, he not an England international? He was an England yeah. international, and he was. He, I just used to have nightmares because Trevor Stephen and Gary Stephen played on the right hand side for Rangers, and they just used 
they both were. Gary Stephen was one of the fittest players, I think, at Rangers, and he just used to bomb. He was before they had the overlapping fullbacks. He was an overlapping fullback, and between the two of them, they used to just give me water in the brain. It was like he was, I think, one of the best players I've ever played against. I could have mentioned Sunis and Paul McStay, but John Collins, but for pure, even just being on the pitch and just nobody able to cope with him, was, it was Trevor Stephen. Fantastic. Uh, the, your favourite stadium you played in? Apart from East End Park, so you thought in a way, I'm, I have to say, I would say Time Castle for what it is now, but, but it wasn't like that when I was playing. But so the my favourite stadium would probably be Tordry because I scored twice up there for Dunfermline. So and as I say, I think I scored at home as well. But mm-hmm. I seem to do I seem to play well at Petodre for some reason. So I'll go with Petodre for that one. Superb. And final one, your one favourite memory from your time at the club. The final whistle at twenty five on that day and. Uh, 1989 when we, we got promotion and the fans streaming on the pitch getting engulfed with the fans waiting for the celebrations getting presented with the trophy and that night I'll live with me forever it was just as I said at the start Mikey that Dunfermline has got a big part of my life and uh, I'll never forget my time there the people were brilliant I loved it I've got nothing but positive memories of Dunfermline and but that day just it meant the world to us all. My biggest regret is they never had a reunion for the mm-hmm. for the the win, the league winning team. I know COVID and that's struck, but it'd have been nice for a 30 year reunion. But Listen, I remember t- saying that there's time, there's time yet, mate. There's time yet. Well if you can pull a few strings, make it <laughs> leave it with me. Uh, well <laughs> top man, top man. David, thanks very much for doing the, the podcast. That's been a, a fantastic hour and a half. Uh, really appreciate your time. And like I say, you're welcome back to East End anytime. So please let us know if you'd like to come back to a match. Oh, I'd love to. And as I say, I really appreciate you. Even to be chosen to be part of our Dunfermline podcast, a big thrill because, you know, for all hundreds of players that have played before and after me, it's nice to be remembered. And as I say, I appreciate you taking the time, Mike, to contact me and give me the opportunity to have a chat. So thanks no very worries, much. Mate. And here's hoping Dunfermline can get promotion this year. Fingers crossed, mate. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Davey. Pleasure, Mikey. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast, which is available on all popular platforms such as Apple iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Thanks as always to our guests in this episode of Walking Down the Holbeath Road. This podcast was produced by Jan Mokkiewicz and music supplied by Stuart Dusty Miller. We look forward to speaking to another former pa in the next episode. Okay.